Uh, but let me invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Is where we're going to begin. Just a few minutes. We'll get to this text in a little bit. But 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is where we're going to land. We're going to be in a two-week series here over the next couple weeks together. Uh, if you have a smartphone, you can pull up the TCBC app and follow along. There's notes there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in front of you in the seat pocket. Feel free to use that. If you need to take that with you, that's our gift to you. Uh, as we dive into this text in just a few minutes. Before we want to do that, I want to, kind of like you heard from the Eisenzoffs there, tell you a little bit of our story, Jennifer and mine. Uh, some of you may have heard this, some of you may not, maybe new to you, but 1995 was the year, and that was the year that Jennifer and I were first married. We were newlyweds, uh, seminary had not come around yet, I was not in full-time ministry, we were just learning to be a newlywed couple, and I was learning to be a husband and learning to provide and be a spiritual leader in our home and all those things I'd heard about and trying to grow into that and whoops many of you probably can relate to that uh, but that was 20 years ago and in, in the middle of that thanks Joe in the middle of that something really pretty devastating happened to us that a lot of you guys can probably relate to is I lost my job so we'd, been only, we'd only been married for six weeks, and I had to come home and tell my wife that because of different circumstances, I, I now had no way to provide for our family. Now again, we were newlyweds, and we didn't have a savings account at all. We were trying to learn how to do those kind of things. So here we are, new husband, newlywed, and I have no way to provide for my family. I had the awkward conversation that you can only imagine of going to my father-in-law, and saying, even though six weeks ago I vowed to take care of your daughter, I, I have to tell you something, I've lost my job. And that was humbling. There was a point in that journey where we still have the, the little checkbook ledger. Some of you all say, what's a checkbook? Well, it used to be a way you could pay, but don't worry about it. Uh, we still have the ledger and the date and everything. Our checkbook, our checking account got down to 78 cents. and That's all we had. And we just exhausted everything. And it was one of those times that many of you, maybe you're in a time like that or coming out of one or probably going into it. It was a time of real pressure and stress and anxiety. But in God's providence, during that exact time, we had become part of a, a church, a church called Tri-Cities Baptist. We didn't go to my wife's home church. We didn't go to my home church. We wanted a new church that could be ours, and we wound up here. So we happened to be here exactly when that season of our life was going on. And in God's caretaking and grace of us, we were surrounded by a group of men and women, a church that taught us during that time what the Bible says about money and finance. Even in a time that we were strapped and stressed and full of anxiety our hearts were open and we wanted to hear what God had to say and I 20 years later now I'm incredibly thankful for the pillars or the stakes of truth that were invested in me by men like Gene Mermilliot and Jim Fuller and Charles Chandler and others that were here that invested in a young couple about what God says about money and finance and here's some principles that we learned very early on I learned as a young man, a young husband, yes, it's my responsibility to provide for my home as much as I'm physically able to do that, but our ultimate provider is God. I learned that. And I saw God provide in ways I couldn't even imagine and still don't know how He did it, but He took care of our family in a time of lean times. 
also provided that when it comes to this area of money and finance and possessions, it can be an area of great personal frustration, anxiety, fear, and worry. And some of you guys can resonate with that right now. But at the same time, when it comes to money, it can be an area of our life, and I speak from personal testimony, that we can see God make Himself known and manifest Himself as clearly as in any other area of our lives. Because God will absolutely honor His promise in this book you can't outgive him. Honor him first. God is your provider. And man, you see him work in incredible, incredible way. So for the next two weeks, what we're going to do is simply say, what does the Word of God, what does Scripture say about this whole area of money and finance? Now, I know what's happening in this room right now. <laughs> I have mentioned the M word, money. And some of you, the hair on the back of your neck is starting to stand up. You're getting a little anxious. Some of you have literally reached for your wallet because you think somebody wants your money. Let me assure you, there are plenty of people out there who are vying for your money. This is not about getting your money. And let me just say as earnestly and with all the sincerity that I can say, it's not what we want from you. It is what we want for you. Because I can tell you over 20 years of marriage, I thank God that somebody cared enough a leader, a pastor, somebody discipled me enough to say, hey, you've you got, you got years ahead of you. You're going you're gonna to have lean times. You're going to have prosperous times. But here's what God's Word says about money. And I'm 20 years thankful for that. I want to share that with you this morning. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to open up and we're gonna, it's gonna, I'm going to share this morning with you a few principles about what the Bible says about money and finance. And then we're going to take a look at a church in 2 Corinthians 8 that was a very cheerfully giving church. They were a, a good stewarding church of the resources God had entrusted to them. So that's kind of the direction. Then next week we're going to get real practical in 2 Corinthians 9 of what it looks like to honor God in the area of our finances. And we'll talk more about that next week. But let me just assure you. Uh, this book has plenty to say about the area of money and finance. Uh, you may not know, but 25% of everything that Jesus said in the New Testament, in the Gospels, is related to money and finance and possession. One quarter. It's a big deal. If you think about it right now, in your life, a great deal of your life and your time is spent making money, spending money, or worrying about money, Right? You can relate to that. I found this article this week as I was researching this a little bit. It was done by the Family Relations Journal. They did a survey of 4,500 couples, and here's what they discovered of those 4,500 couples. That arguments about money are by far the top predictor of divorce among couples. Translation. Money problems within marriage are by far one of the main causes of divorce. I read this, it said, research also concluded that arguments about money were longer and usually more intense than all other marital disagreements. Some of you right now are a little bit awkward and uncomfortable because you realize, man, there's some relational strain in my life and I can, I can trace it right back to money and finance. The Bible has much to say about that. So let me just share with you some basic principles about 
biblical realities of money and possessions. I'm going to give you four or five of them, and then we're going to jump into this Second Corinthians passage and look at a church that was living some of these principles out. These are some things that have been so helpful for me through the years. Uh, many of these are not going to be new to some of you, but let me just share five of these of what the Bible says about money and possessions, all right? Number one is this. God owns everything. I am merely His steward. <laughs> That is fundamental in everything you have, everything you own, everything you might ever own. Biblically, we believe God owns everything. You say, well, hold on just a second. You don't know, I've worked hard. I'm sure you have. I have a job. I've earned it. I'm sure you have. But you have to understand, the Bible teaches God owns everything. God is the giver of everything. God is even the one who gives you the capacity and the skill to make money. Psalm 24.1 says this, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all the people belong to Him. It is absolutely freeing in our lives to realize, Okay, Lord, here's what you've entrusted to me. The word steward, I'm a steward. We don't use that word a lot today, but it means I'm a manager of what belongs to somebody else. You hear that? Now that'll change your perspective on your money and your stuff. God, it's really not mine. It all belongs to you. And if you want to fill my life with it, Lord, that's fine. Lord, if you want me to enjoy it, you want me to give it. Lord, you want to take it away. Lord, you want to add to it. However you choose to do that, Lord, I recognize you own it all. I'm merely a manager of what belongs to somebody else. That's incredibly freeing. Secondly, I think it's important for us to know that Scripture in no way forbids having money. The church through the years goes on these pendulums of, there's one pendulum called the prosperity gospel that says, I'm godly and God really loves me if I'm filthy rich. And if I'm not filthy rich, then I must not be godly. Well, that's not biblical. Then there's another, another swing that's kind of a little more popular today, and it's this idea. My godliness is directly related to what I don't have. The more poor I am, the more godly I am. Listen, God may call you to give everything away, and if He does, do it. But what you have or don't have is not a sign of your godliness. So be careful of the prosperity gospel and be careful of the poverty gospel. What does the Bible say? Proverbs 10, It is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. Everything's from God. Deuteronomy 8, I mentioned this earlier, but you shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. That's a great verse for us to know. Deuteronomy eight eighteen. If you have capacity to have a job, hold a job, have income, that is a gift from God. He's given us the power to do it. 1 Timothy 6.17, a great verse for us. Paul says, instruct those who are rich in this present world. And by the way, that would be every single one of us living in America. If you have more than four or five pairs of clothes, you're rich by the standard of the rest of the world. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. It is a biblical reality that God gives us some things to enjoy. Enjoy what God gives you. It's from Him. I'm a steward. 
God, do you want to take it away? I trust you. God, do you want me to give it away? I trust you. God, do you want to fill my life with more? It's all yours. Thirdly, Scripture in no way forbids money, but here's what Scripture does. Scripture warns us to not love money. Warning throughout this book about the dangers and the snares of loving money. See, what happens with money, there's something unique about money and possessions and things that we have. The gift, I mean, just take whatever it is, a a new car, a house, a large paycheck, whatever it is. The, The gift that's from God can easily begin to no longer be a gift, but it can become the God itself. And money and possessions, Paul says, they're uncertain. They make a very cruel God, I assure you. So what does the Bible say? It says this, 1 Timothy chapter 6 says, But those who want to get rich, those who want to get rich, in other words, this compelling, overarching desire to get rich. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be successful. There's nothing wrong with wanting to do a good job. There's nothing wrong with wanting to start a business and make money. That's not the point. But if it's this sense of, I've got to get rich, and my contentment and my joy is directly related to having more And by the way, if you don't know, you live in a culture that here's the message of the culture. More, 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 more. How much do I need to be happy and satisfied? Just a little bit more. (laughs) That's the lie. It says, but those who want to get rich, verse 9 of 1 Timothy 6, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare. This is the picture of a trapper who goes out and captures an animal in a snare and holds it there to destroy it. Money can be a snare of your soul. That's what it says. And many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And we all know the testimony and the story of families and businesses and churches. Organizations and people's lives that were wrecked and destroyed because of this insatiable craving for more and success. And this is not enough and I've got to... Exactly what the Bible says. Verse 10. The love of money is the root of all evil. It says it's the root of all sorts of evil, all kinds of things in our life. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Do you hear that? Paul says, hey, guard your hearts, brothers and sisters. Because this thing called money and possessions can so easily begin to supplant even the Lord Jesus as the Lord, as the Lord of our lives. And money wants to be God. Listen, some of you, 1 Timothy 6 is all, true, all too true for you right now. There are evils and there are snares and there are things in your life right now that are killing you and zapping you of relational joy they are zapping you of all kinds of blessings because you are you have moved money to be your sole focus guard your hearts brothers and sisters Jesus said this Luke 12 Jesus said beware And be on your guard against every form of greed. Listen, when Jesus Christ says beware, beware. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. 
Is it wrong to get new things? No. Is it foolish to think my life is going to become inherently better if I get that new thing? That's foolish. Your life does not consist of things, Jesus says. Beware, beware, beware. And listen, I was doing a little research on the internet this week. You know, you've got to understand, especially parents, get this. You live in a culture, in the Western culture, everything you see, everything you have on TV. Listen, we're going to watch the Super Bowl tonight. I'm going to watch the Super Bowl. Go Broncos. Just get that out of the way. There's going to be a ton of commercials. Some of you I just lost right there. I know it. You're on your app right now. Hang on. And you're going to watch a ton of commercials. Here's what you've got to know. You live in a culture that the overarching stream and flow is to move you from contentment and thankfulness to discontentment and greed. Everything. Every commercial has as its goal and motive to create a need in you of something that you didn't have before. 30 seconds ago, you didn't even know it existed. But the commercial says subtly, this is what you must have. And what happens in your heart and my heart is exactly what Jesus says. Beware of every form of greed. It creates this little desire in you. I've got to have it. And here's what's going to make me happy. One more thing. One more thing. One more thing. One more thing. Average American. (laughs) Average American will view on a yearly basis somewhere around 25,000 commercials. And every commercial is saying, you cannot be content with what you have. Contentment will only be found with that thing that you do not have. I came across this statistic. I have three little girls in my home. Out there on the market, there are 40,000 different Disney princess products. 40,000! Nothing against Disney princes. You could never get them all. Well, I've got 30,000 of them. Oh, you got 10,000 more to go. Are you kidding? Guard your hearts, brothers and sisters. Number four, very quickly. Money is a major competitor for our heart. Money is a major competitor for the affection and the attention of your heart. See, where do you get that from? Jesus. Matthew 6, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. No one. Your heart is not wired. You do not have the capacity to serve two masters. You will serve one, he says. You will either hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. Then he gets very specific. Matthew 6, 24. You cannot serve God and money. Very convicting to read that and ask yourself, okay, Lord, at this present time in my life, is my heart tuned to worship things or you? Can't do both. Can't do both. You can have things. You can enjoy things. The ultimate trust and devotion is to Christ. Number five, very quickly. God's anecdote, God's antidote against greed is giving. Giving. See, God's rigged it this way. 
God's given us something called giving and generosity to train our heart. Our heart does not naturally drift towards generosity. Our heart drifts towards self. But he's given us this practice called giving to train and guide our hearts. Listen to what it says. Matthew 6, Jesus says, Do not, Laura, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. We can all say amen to that. Things break, things tear up, nothing seems to work like it's supposed to. Moth and rust. Everything you own will ultimately end up in a landfill. <laughs> How about that? That Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth or rust destroy, and where thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Here's a reality for you, a reality for me. Wherever I make my greatest investment, wherever the flow of my money goes, my heart will follow. That's the way it works. Jesus said it. So wherever I direct my resources, wherever I channel those, is where my heart will be. Is it therefore focused on eternal things, or is it focused on temporal things? Here's a very convicting statement that came across my mind this week. We'll talk more about this next week when we get really practical. On a monthly basis, is the largest investment of my money into something temporal or something eternal? Is the largest check I write, you say, what's a check? I know. Is the largest investment I make... Every month, is it something temporal, something eternal? That'll tell us a lot about where our heart is. Man, that was convicting for me this week. Randy Alcorn, great author, wrote this little book right here. We're going to make this available to sell today. It'll be available out at the resource table. Short little book. Encourage you to pick this up. It's only 10 bucks. If you don't have 10 bucks, take it. It's a great investment. He said this about money and possessions. Great statement. He said, giving is the only antidote to materialism. Giving is a joyful surrender to a person greater and a greater agenda. Watch this. Giving dethrones me and exalts Christ. As we give, we're recognizing you are the source, you are the supply, and I'm going to make sure that money does not become the God or the focus of my life. Giving is a way we do that. So, here's what we're going to do for the next few minutes. By the way, all that was just introduction. Okay, y'all ready? Some of you think, are you kidding? I am kidding, sort of. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 now takes the principles that we just looked at and says, here's what it looks like in the life of a local church. Here's what this can look like in the lives of people. The next week, we're going to really dig in a little bit more and get really practical, practically what it looks like on a day-to-day. So turn to 2 Corinthians. You're probably already there. I'm going to read five verses, give you a few principles from here. And what we're looking at is a church that is putting some of these things we just read into practice. Real quick context, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter back to the church at Corinth, a messed up church who got a lot of things wrong. They get some things right. And, and he, he's teaching them about giving. He's teaching them about money and possession. He says, okay, I'm going to give them an example of another church, the churches of Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. I'm going to give them an example, Corinth, of the giving that was in Philippi. And he uses that and he says, I want to write to you about what I saw there to challenge and encourage them, to challenge and encourage us as well. Verse 1, Paul writes, he says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. He's talking about grace. Giving is always a result of the grace of God in our lives. Verse 2, 
For in severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in the wealth of generosity on their part. Remember, he's writing to one church, telling them about the the witness of another church. Verse 3. For they gave. They gave according to their means, as I can testify. Paul says, I first-hand knowledge of this. I've seen, I'm telling you the truth. I can testify. And they gave beyond their means, and they gave of their own accord. Verse 4. Begging us. Love that. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Verse 5. And this, not as we expected. Paul says, they exceeded all my expectations in their giving. And here's why. Here's how they could. End of verse 5. But they gave themselves first to the Lord. And then, by the will of God, to us. Paul said, we, they did what we asked them, only because first they'd given themselves to the Lord. So what you have here is a very practical, helpful, challenging look of a church that was a, was a church of cheerful givers. Five things we learn about cheerful giving. You write these down. I'm going to give these to you really quick. And then we're going to make it practical in your lives. Okay, here we go. From this church here. Number one is this. Cheerful giving is an overflow of grace received. Verse 1, he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. In other words, the churches in Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, those believers were lavish in their giving. They were lavish in their stewardship and their generosity because they had experienced the lavish grace of God. And God had transformed their hearts to the point that by the Spirit of God living within them, they saw money, they saw possessions, they saw stuff from a kingdom perspective and not merely an earthly perspective. Listen, the gospel changes everything. Can we say it like that? Everything. See, one of the reasons, and I'm going to get very practical here. One of the reasons I think churches struggle, pastors struggle, and there's this, I'll be honest, there's sometimes this fear and intrepidation. I'm talking about money. I know people are going to resent that. There's going to be this, well, he's just out to get my money. Here's one of the reasons. Generosity and giving flows out of a transformed heart. Those whose hearts have not been transformed by Christ are never going to experience this kind of giving and generosity. It's not in them. It's not that somebody wakes up one day and says, you know what, I'm going to live for the kingdom of God and invest my possessions in things that are eternal. If Christ is not in you, that is the most foolish thing on the planet. But oh man, for you and for me and those of you that have been transformed by Christ, you read this and you have that desire. I want to take what is temporal. I want to take what God has given to me and I want to spend it on things that are eternal. I want to invest it in the lives of people. I want to invest it in the things of, ki- of the kingdom. I want what God has entrusted to me to matter. Listen, that is God's grace at work in you. So for some of you, This message this morning is not about giving. This message is a strong wake-up to whether or not your hearts have ever been transformed at all. And the grace of God is being revealed to you right now that it's not a question of what do you give. It's a question of this. Who has your heart? Is it Christ? Is it Christ? Or is it you? 
See, that changes your perspective on everything, especially money and possessions. Secondly, very quick, Paul says, listen, let me tell you about this church's giving. They gave from a test of severe affliction. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. It was a rough time for these churches that gave so generously. I mean, we might tend to think, well, they were some kind of mega church. They were in big cities. They had all this lavish money. They had nothing. Paul says their affliction, which is the word pressure, they had poverty. It's extreme poverty. The word extreme means literally rock bottom, dirt poor. Uh, They didn't have much to give at all. They were persecuted. They were afflicted. But he says their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Their abundance of joy. Not often do you see the word extreme poverty and great generosity go hand in hand. But you do here. That's the grace of God. So here's your next principle very quickly. Truth number two. Cheerful giving is not hindered by difficult circumstances. It's not about how much you have. Listen, a giving heart is, it doesn't matter what you have. In fact, proportionally in the United States, when, when people are given, when people have more and more and more and more and more, their proportion of giving goes less, 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 and less, and less. So here's these guys, they had hardly nothing. They realized everything was from God. They trusted God. They gave generously. Cheerful giving was not hindered by their difficult circumstances. Verse 3, for they gave. How'd they give? It says they gave according to their means. Everyone doesn't give the same. Everyone doesn't have the same capacity to give. He says they gave according to their means. He said they even gave beyond their means. There are times that we give sacrificially. Meaning from a human perspective, you say, Lord, there's no way I can meet that need. Lord, there's no way I can give that much. It doesn't match up on paper. And the Spirit of God from the Word of God is very clear. Trust me. We're going to see next week where he says, God is able to make all grace abound. I'll say it again. You hear this all the time. It may be a churchy statement. You absolutely cannot outgive the sovereign God of the universe. You can't do it. Can't do it. So the third truth here is this, that that cheerful giving is proportional. It is sacrificial. And it's from a willing heart. Paul was not guilting these people into giving. Paul was not preaching the 18th sermon from a giving series. Paul was not calling them and saying, you better check your giving records. It was none of that. It was simply a realization that these people have been so transformed by the grace of God. Paul said, I have given them an opportunity to give, and they are ready to invest in the kingdom of God. They gave proportionally. They gave sacrificially. And they gave willingly. And by the way, it seems that everyone gave. It seems they all participated. There was not the, the, the fringe group that said, well, you know, I'm just kind of on the fringe. I'm not really involved there. I'm not going to... Everybody participated. They called that church home. Verse 4. This is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible as a pastor. Chapter 8, verse 4. He says, they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part of the relief of the saints. Wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, it's time to take up the offering, for example, and people are just in a ruckus. They're standing They are begging, yeah, it's ready to give. We're time to give. I was at a church in Florida one time, Church of Bell Shoals in Florida, and literally the pastor had so taught them about cheerful giving, which cheerful means hilarious, actually. Every time they passed the offering plate, the church would just erupt in this cheer and applause because they wanted 
to give. They wanted to take what was temporal and then send it on into eternity. Jesus said, do not store up treasures for yourself on earth. Send it on ahead. Give. And what is temporal becomes immortal and eternal as we trust him. Truth number four. He says, they were begging earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Truth number four is this. Cheerful giving connects God's blessings to God's eternal purposes in the world. You realize, God, you have entrusted to me to invest in what you're doing all over the world. The Philippians realized this. Paul was taking up a collection for the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. They were poor Jerusalem and saints. They said, okay, we're going to take up a collection. We're going to invest in the lives of our brothers and sisters all the way in Jerusalem. They said, yeah, we want to invest because it's a kingdom investment. God, it's what you're doing. And we want to give. So for you and for me, when we have the privilege of consistently, regularly honoring God first and giving first through a local church like Tri-Cities, you have to understand... You're not giving to a church. You are giving through a church to invest in God's kingdom activity around the world. I mean, you understand, just like the saints here say, we want to give. We want to make this investment. When you give here, you realize you take part financially in the discipleship of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. When you give financially here, when I get to give financially here, my family is very faithful to give here because we believe in what God's doing here. You're investing in discipling hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of the next generation. You're investing in, in meeting the needs of literally thousands of people in our community. Did you know that the Touchpoint Food Bank, which we own as a church and manage as a church, fed over 3,000 people last year in our community? We get to be a part of that. Did you know when you give through this local church, you're a part of training pastors, sending teams, helping plant churches, touching five continents around the world? You get to be a part of that. You get to be a part of blessing the underground church and training pastors in the country of Laos and the country of Thailand that you'll never meet this side of eternity. You get to give to start churches in places like Portland and start campuses in places like here in Johnson City. And you get to be a part of what goes on here every weekend. And you get to be a part of making disciples who make disciples to the ends of the earth. That is an eternal kingdom investment. Listen, for me... I want to be a part of that. I do. Paul said this group of believers here, they wanted to be a part of that. Number five, we're finished. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 5 says this. Paul says, and they gave. They gave regularly, they gave faithfully, they gave sacrificially. He says, they didn't give as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to the will of God through us. You know what that means? That word first there is not first in time. It's first in priority. The point was that their giving was a demonstration of who really had their heart. Their giving was a demonstration of who truly was their master. It was the, it was the idea is that they had given themselves to Christ. Christ had their heart and their affections and their joys and their desires are, are so wrapped up in the person of King Jesus, the money naturally followed. Lord, when, when you become a believer, when you walk with Christ, when you know Christ, He is Lord of all. And He is the greatest joy of your life. And when your heart is fixed on Him, 
then everything in your life you freely give whatever, God, yes, whatever it is. Money, time, possessions, future, job, everything. It's yours. It's kind of like, guys, when you first started dating your wife, or maybe you're in a dating relationship now, and you think, man, I'm so enthralled with this young lady. I'm so in love with this young lady. No price is too much to pay. Where, where do you want to go to eat? What restaurant do you want? No price is too much for you, honey. Now it's kind of, well, McDonald's has got a Happy Meal. How about that? Things change. Listen, the point is, the way you spend your money does reveal who has your heart. So, your fifth principle is this. Cheerful giving is ultimately an act of worship. It's an act of worship. See, worship can be defined as how we respond to that which we love most. Worship's not just singing. Worship's, worship's all of our life that we live or give in response to the greatness of Christ. Paul says this church here in Philippi, these examples that, man, they first gave themselves to Christ. They had been transformed by the grace of God, and of course their giving followed. So what we're going to do this morning, again, next week we're going to get even more practical, but I want to kind of enter into just a time of response for you. And again, it's not pressure, it's not heavy-handed, it's you responding to the Spirit of God as He's prompted your heart this morning. So I'm going to ask the team just to come on up here and kind of begin to play. And I, I want to ask you, I really want to ask you three questions this morning. The first question is it's kind of broad, and, and it's this sense, and I wrestled this week with this, why is it that often, even in the lives of believers, is this whole area of giving such a struggle? So three Three statements, questions, if you will, is this. The first reason this area of giving can be such a struggle is this. Here's my question. Has your heart ever been transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ? Have you given yourself to Him? Are you just playing? Are you just on the fringes? Are you just going through the Christian motions? See, truly transformed hearts reveal themselves in different ways. One of the ways is through a heart of generosity. Is that true of you? If it's not, the response for you this morning really has nothing to do with an offering plate. It has has everything to do with who's the Lord and Master of your life. Everything. So if you're here this morning and through the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, you you come to realize, wait a minute. I, I don't know Christ. This emptiness that I've been trying to fill, this, these desires that I don't have, this playing the church game, I don't want it anymore. This morning, by faith, you can receive Jesus Christ as Savior, as Lord. His Spirit comes to live inside of you and makes you new from the inside out. He puts His nature inside of you. He died. He rose again. He resurrected. And by faith, receive Christ. Call out to Him. It's right there where you're seated. You need to bow your head. That's fine. Lord, I need you. God, I give my life to you. I don't want to play games. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, delivered, transformed, made new. Maybe that's you. Second reason this is so hard for some people is that even as believers, our heart can shift 
the worship of our life shifts from God to temporal things. Time, energy, effort, focus. And those things begin to dominate our affections and our attention and our heart just begins to shift. Jesus said, listen, you cannot serve two masters. You can't do it. Which master are you serving? Third one, very quickly. Giving is a struggle when we lose sight of the grace of God. So go back and read on your own, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says this. I'm just going to read. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. That's the gospel. The King of glory with infinite wealth laid it all aside, took on humanity, came and died on a cross, rose from the dead for you so that you could know the riches of His grace and glory forever and ever. That's the gospel. Have you lost sight of that? See, anything you ever give, anything you're ever asked to give will never even come close to what has already been given to you. So I'm going to ask you just to respond right there in your seats to the Lord, whatever He's doing in your heart. Ask you just to bow your head for a second. It's you and the Lord alone. I'm not going to pressure or prod. Lord, what are you saying to me? What is the condition of my heart? And in just a second, our team's going to lead us in a song of response.